Hello, and welcome to En Route, the podcast where we talk about life on the way. I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm your host. Make sure to visit our website, enroutepodcast.org, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via RSS, so that you'll never miss a show. And while you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate it if you would rate us on iTunes, or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out, too. So a few episodes ago, I talked about America facing a Gotterdammerung. A Gotterdammerung is the collapse of our society. And America is broken in so many ways. And I know we use the word broken so much in our parlance today, but I think when it comes to our nation, it's true. America is broken. Our social safety net is broken. We are more atomized than ever. We're divided by race and class, and we can't even seem to come together to build infrastructure, let alone tackle a once-in-a-century pandemic. In the latest issue of The Atlantic, writer George Packer talks about how America is actually divided into four separate Americas. He talks about free America, and that's basically the Reagan coalition that was interested more in shrinking government, as well as shrinking and loosening other social ties. There's Smart America, um, a place that is based on the meritocracy and tends to look down on people not like them, especially the working class. There's Real America, which is basically made up of just the white working class. It's suspicious of elites and anyone that's not white. And finally, there is Just America. It's an America that lifts, that seems to focus on America being a less than perfect society. In fact, to say that it is a very imperfect society and has very little to say on how to fix societal problems, much less why they should be fixed. Each one of these Americas has ripped apart the social fabric. And none have done anything, really, to try to weave us back together because, frankly, they're too siloed off from each other to care. So if Gotterdammerung is about collapse, then Wiederaufbau is about reconstruction or rebuilding. Now, this German word has been associated with Germany in the post-war years as the nation sought to rebuild in the aftermath of World War II. But the rebuilding wasn't simply about rebuilding physical buildings. Even though that was true, most of the major cities were bombed out and you had to restructure um, and build those cities and industry back up. But they also needed to build up something else, and that was to build up the society, the spirit of German society. Four years ago, in 2017, my husband and I went to Germany. We um, spent some time in in Frankfurt and then um, also in Stuttgart. And what is so fascinating, and this is not my first time to Europe, but what was so fascinating and what made this trip so different from other European vacations is how much 
World War II was still a living thing in Germany. Everywhere you went, they would talk about how this part of the city, this building, had been destroyed um, in the war and was rebuilt after. And that was the case with so many places in Germany. In Frankfurt, there is a place that we visited called Paulskirche, or St. Paul's Church. Now, it's no longer an active church, but it's well-known and famous really for one major reason. Because 150 years prior, in 1848, the kind of first stirrings of what would be German democracy took place there. 1848, for those of you who don't know, was um, a year of sweeping revolutions throughout Europe that challenged the old order, and that in most cases was the aristocracy, and really fought, wanted to move uh, and support liberalism. And it was here in Frankfurt that a parliament in what was at that time Prussia was put together, and it met... Um, during kind of the, the liberal spring um, that was there. And it met at Paul's Kirka. And so when we go back to just after the war, and remember, Germany is broken. They have been defeated in war. The Allies have bombed their cities. They, are, have, been, they have surrendered. As they were rebuilding Frankfurt, the mayor, and I believe, and, and, and also the people of Frankfurt, wanted Paulskirche to be built first, before anything else, even their own homes. They rebuilt Paulskirche because of what it stood for. It stood for democracy. And after spending decades in a broken society, Broken in the aftermath of World War I, broken during the Weimar Republic, broken especially during uh, the Third Reich. They wanted something that was a symbol of hope. And so they wanted Paulskirche to be built, rebuilt first. It was a way of rededicating themselves to democratic rule. And after living, as I said, for so many years in this broken society, they wanted a living symbol of Peter Aufbau. America is not Nazi Germany, so I need to stress that before anyone starts to think I'm saying that this is Nazi Germany. We're not even post-war Germany. But something about us, something about our society, is broken. We are torn apart. And the thing is, how do we put ourselves back together? There aren't any easy answers. But I came up with four suggestions. And look, I'm not anyone special. But I am someone, I am an American, and I am concerned about what I see in our society. So, 
this is my attempt to try to put some things together that might help bring our country back together. So here are the four things. The first is that we need to rebuild civility. This is controversial because these days it is really hard to talk about civility without people misunderstanding what we're talking about. It's become so common in our society today to think of civility as nothing more than a tool of oppression or a way of shutting people up. Or it's about being nice. And especially these days, no one wants to be nice. But civility isn't trying to be nice. It's not trying to oppress. It's not trying to obfuscate issues. Civility really is treating those that we disagree with as human beings that are worthy of respect instead of people who are evil that must be taken out. If you look at Fox News, if you look at MSNBC, the thing that I don't like about either of those channels and why I think they do great harm in our society is because well, one, the news that happens on those channels are highly suspect, but they're more interested about riling up their side more than anything else. What they're interested in is really talking about how the other side is bad and how they're evil. And so that's kind of their main goal is to do that. And of course, it works. You get people who come and they watch because it reaffirms what they already know. And I think that those things like that have helped to drive down civility. But that's, it's not simply just television. And, you know, these days everyone wants to blame social media. We will talk about all the algorithms and how they are designed towards conflict. And that's what has made us so uncivil. But the fact is, we have had a problem with civility long before Twitter or Facebook came on the scene. It doesn't mean that those two are, are, are blameless, but they simply accelerated what was already there. We have to find ways for our institutions to be able to be places where discussion is fostered, but also where respect is fostered. Somewhere in our life, we have learned not to respect other people who are different from us, whether it's that they have a different opinion or a different or are just different. We don't know how to do that. We need to have places where we can learn civility. Maybe it's not a, too far off to say that it's, you know, the word civility and the other word civic are not, are very much related. But they have Civility has a public function. It's not about simply being nice, but it is about 
bringing together as a society. Because if you don't have a society that is knitted together in some way, and it doesn't mean universal agreement, but if you don't have something where people can see each other with respect, that makes democracy difficult to maintain. I think the second thing that we need to do is to bring back the common good. Um, now, I'm on the the center-right, and somewhere at some point, we don't like to hear the word common good. That has scared us, because we tend to think that anything that sucks about common good is some kind of communist plot. However, and also, I don't, but though I do need to add this important caveat, there have been people on the right that are bringing up the common good. But mostly those people are people who have maybe seen the, the movement of, of Donald Trump and saw it as a way to bring back their own kind of sense of what they think how society should run. There are people like the Catholic Integralists, um, led by people like Patrick Deneen and A.D.M. Vermeule, who talk about common good, but common good there is not about looking beyond your own interests towards the interests of others. It's really a sense of conformity. It's really a sense of everyone should think the same way, everyone should do things the same way. And that's not what the common good should be about. The common good should be about looking at the wider picture, not just looking at our own picture. And maybe the best way that I can put this to an example is to talk about Penn Station in New York. If you have ever been to New York um, and you've ever been to through Penn Station, you know what it looks like. Now, Penn Station... Years ago, at the turn of the last century, a building was built, it was a very beautiful building um, for the main station in the city. Unfortunately, that building was torn down in the 1960s, and in its place was built a station that was built underground. And it was not much to look at. You get off the train, and it's kind of dingy, it feels like you stepped into 1976 in New York. And I don't mean that in a good way. And so there had always, there have been over the years a uh, move to rebuild and repair and and help um, Penn Station have a new look. Um, and there is an article I will put in the show notes that, that tells you a little bit about um, that process, but also it begins with an interesting story that in some ways talks about and then sums up America right now. But they wanted to build a train hall that was kind of a, a almost like a terminal where people can come in, they would get ticketing, and then have stairs that would go to the train. It took 30, nearly 30 years for that to get built. To understand why it took so long, you have to go back to the 1970s. 
And there were great efforts um, through government to really make sure that when big infrastructure projects were being built, that people's voices were being heard. Because there were people, um, people like Robert Moses, the great, um, he's been called the master builder. He built a lot of public works projects. He would build projects, and, and they were beautiful projects, but they always came at a cost in some ways because they would sometimes um, build over people's houses and, and neighborhoods, and all those places were literally plowed under for his projects to be built. Add in how many freeways that were built into cities usually were built over um, um, African-American neighborhoods. That is something I've talked about here in Minnesota, um, a black neighborhood in St. Paul, Rondo, was basically destroyed uh, to put in Interstate 94. So there were, people's hearts were in the right places. They wanted to make make sure that these projects were built with some sense of care. But as it always happens, what was intended was not how it turned out. Different groups with different interests now were able, because of the changes, to come in to block the process. There was no sense in making sure voices were heard. It was simply to block things. And Penn Station was just one example. In fact, they wanted to build, uh, use the um, main post office, which was built by the next door to what was the old Penn Station, um, to use it, most of it, for the train hall. And for many years, the Postal Service blocked it. And there were other interests that blocked it as well. And this story was not simply just about what now is the Moynihan Train Hall, which just finally opened up this year. It was really simply a stand-in for other projects because, and I found this interesting, in New York City alone, since the 1960s, there had not been any major public works project built. So for nearly over 50 years, nothing had been built. And when it, they were built, and there were some built, it was simply, it was because of basically 9-11. You had to have a bunch of terrorists to basically have a public works project. And that is the problem all around the country, that we aren't able to build the projects that we used to build because these laws that were built that were cut, that were designed to make sure that people were able to at least have their voices heard, to make sure that we didn't run roughshod, became ways of blocking any type of project. And it's an example that we were all divided into our own interests. We weren't really thinking about the wider, wider goal. So everyone was thinking in their own interests, but not in a wider interest, whether that's a city interest or a nation interest. The thing is, though, you can believe in your own interest, but also see something wider than you. You can look about how your self-interest is tied into the self-interest of someone else. 
But to do that, we have to have a wider scope. And I think a problem in our America today is that we can't really see beyond our own view. So the third thing that we need is to rebuild bipartisanship. Now, we always talk about that, that it would be nice if we were more bipartisan and that if we do this and that, you know, maybe in Congress, sit with one another, we can restore bipartisanship. But you really, bipartisanship isn't about being nice to one another. It's really about creating those spaces, those structures that allow for bipartisanship to happen. The reason in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s there was more bipartisanship than there has been in in recent years is because there were certain things that happened and certain structures that made it possible. Obviously, the the most obvious one is um, is World War II. Many of the people who came in and to serve in Congress after World War II were people who served in the Army. Or, or in the military. So they all had a, a common goal, a shared purpose. And so they didn't look at each other as liberals and conservatives. They looked at each other as fellow Americans. The second thing is, is that many of the, the, the legislators lived in D.C. And so they were able to build, uh, to buy homes, and their... Well, in this case, back then, because it was mostly mostly men, their wives got together. There would, or were things that brought people together, and then that spilled over into legislation. And then finally, the one that I think is the most important is that there were factions within the parties. The parties weren't monolithic. There were different groups um, within the parties that all spoke, that forced, of course, cooperation within the parties, but it also meant that if they couldn't get something within the party, they could go to an, a faction in the other party to see if something could be worked out. And so you had a lot of cross-partisan um, initiatives happening because there were these institutions, these middle things, uh, middle um, ways that allowed for people to come together and talk. If you don't have any of that, it's going to be really hard to be bipartisan. The final thing that we need, and sometimes I think that this one is the most important of all of them, is that we need, as a people, to invest in our institutions. And this is not as hard as we, you think it is. I recently, um, I'm the, as many of you know, I'm the pastor of a congregation here in the Twin Cities. It's a pretty small congregation. Um, some would say it's, you know, it's future. I don't know if it's cloudy. And we want to kind of turn it around. But, and so I was reading something by Frederica Matthews Green, who was a religion writer. She wrote something a while back about basically geared to people who are visiting and finding, looking for new church homes. That if you visit um, a dying church, that maybe you want to stay and invest in it. 
that maybe instead of looking at the church, seeing that it not meet your needs and walk on, that maybe you spend some time there and see what you can do to help it to be a better place. Maybe that you come and pray for the people who make up the church. Um, maybe that you get actually get a uh, um, directory and pray over each person. What she was getting at is that if you want to see strong institutions, we have a role to play. In fact, it's a role we have to play. And for that to happen, you have to spend time. And I don't know how many people will complain about the political parties and how bad they are, especially on my side of the aisle, but they don't do anything. They don't spend time trying to rebuild it. In essence, we've become a nation of consumers instead of citizens. And so we want things that will be, that will work in the way that we want them to work in order that they meet our needs instead of finding out how we can use our talents and our skills to build up those institutions. And so we don't have any sense anymore of responsibility to institutions, whether there are churches or political parties or civic associations. If we don't like the state of our current political culture, then maybe we should take part in political parties and try to change them, to force them to do come up with other ideas. If we don't like the state of our organizations, civic organizations like the Elks or something, again, it's about volunteering and taking part. We have to stop being considering being just customers that aren't pleased with how things turn out and actually to be citizens that are interested in creating and making a more healthy and whole America. So those are the four things that I have um, to share about how we can um, rebuild America. And there are lots more. I'm, that's not the only ones that I have. But I think what I'm trying to get at is that America is broken. But all isn't lost. There is still hope. But we have to really re realize that that hope isn't in a person it isn't in a group. It is in us. That was a system that we have operated under for centuries. And that the only way that things will change is when we are willing to step up and to be the change. And maybe if it's just us, little by little things will change. So if we step up and so someone else down the street steps up, and if that person, other other person steps up, things will happen and things will change. But it only happens if we're willing to, to take those chances, to willing to take an active part in our society to bring about and foster change. 
Because you can only rebuild a society if people are willing to take the time to rebuild. Things won't change by themselves. We can't wait that someone else will do the hard work for us. If we want to see a society where there is liberty and justice for all, we also have to be a society that believes that together we must provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. So I wanted to give one uh, quick shout out about Juneteenth. I'm recording this on June 19th, which is Juneteenth, and this is the first time, the first holiday, when it is a national federal holiday. Um, I think that that's important. It's interesting that there has been, of course, some pushback, of course, from the same usual people about this. There's been some talk that somehow this will take away from July 4th. But the reality is Juneteenth isn't taking away from July 4th. I think it fulfills July 4th. This isn't a holiday simply for African Americans. It's not simply a holiday for the woke. It's a holiday for America. It signifies our country at least trying to put to end a dark blot of slavery and to try to live up to those words that we find on the Declaration of Independence and also the Constitution of equality, of the fact that America is for all of us. No, we're not necessarily perfect. We, we haven't yet banished every form of inequality. But Juneteenth signified that we moved forward. That we were willing to try to better live out who we are as Americans. The 4th of July, of course, is one of my favorite holidays. Because, of course, again, because of all the values that it represents. Juneteenth doesn't take away from that. It actually makes it more real. Of course, it's more personal for me as an African American um, who has, obviously, relatives, if you go far back enough, that were slaves. And so, the fact that this symbolizes their freedom matters. But it isn't a holiday just for African Americans. It is a holiday for all of us. And it's also a way to spur us on so that we can be a nation that can truly live up to those words that are found in the Pledge of Allegiance that we can be a nation that is individual, indivisible, with liberty, and with justice for all. 
America, in many ways, is always a work in progress. We have never really been someone that comes out all perfect. And in some, thing, in some ways, I think that's good. Because no nation is perfect. No nation is complete. We are always working towards being better. Being more whole. To truly be that city on a shining hill. We're not totally there yet. But we're close. And the fact that this holiday is now a holiday for everyone brings us one step closer. With that, I conclude this episode of En Route. Thank you for listening. Again, if you have, um, if you are, please go to our website, enroutepodcast.org. There you can um, either listen, you can listen to the podcast on our website, but even better, um, click on one of the, the subscribe buttons uh, to our different, to the different services, whether it's iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, <coughs> excuse me, Google Podcasts or RSS, and subscribe so that you won't miss the show. And also, please consider leaving a rating if you find this show has been valuable. If you have any questions, um, feel free to leave a message. Again, you can do that at our website. My name is Dennis Sanders. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of En Route, where we talk about life along the way. My name is Dennis Sanders. Take care and Godspeed.